From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. For this month's episode of the F-Word on Fascism, journalist and author Chris Hedges on the rise of Christian fascism in the United States and the nomination of far-right judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. They're really a cover for a very frightening kind of totalitarianism, and that's why, of course, they use the symbols of the Christian faith and fuse the iconography and language of Christianity with the symbols of the state. And protesters in D.C. raise their voices outside the Senate and Supreme Court. It's very heavy and very visceral what we are doing because what is happening right now in this country is very heavy and very visceral for the lives of millions and millions. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, breaking all precedent, the Republican-led Senate Judiciary Committee approved a motion on Thursday to vote on the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court on October 22nd, with the full Senate considering Barrett as early as the next day on October 23rd. The scheduled committee vote less than two weeks before the presidential election will occur as millions of Americans have already voted and will be the closest to an election day that a Supreme Court nominee has been considered. Though Barrett failed to answer key questions about court precedent on abortion and the Affordable Care Act during the four-day hearing, she did raise her share of controversy with her inability to say that voter intimidation is wrong or illegal or that the president should commit to a peaceful transition of power, or that climate change is settled science rather than quote-unquote controversial, as she described it. For all their opposition to Barrett, Democrats were unable to dent the determination of their Republican colleagues to ram through this nomination. On the streets outside the hearing, or in front of the Supreme Court, there were daily demonstrations. Thursday, members of D.C.'s Long Live Go-Go movement, a coalition of musical artists, headlined a rally, and on-the-ground reporter Lydia Curtis was on hand. On the Ground was at the Supreme Court on day four of the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett, Donald Trump's nominee to take the seat vacated by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Barrett is expected to tip the balance of the court in favor of conservative positions on health care, reproductive freedom, immigration, LGBTQ rights, and other issues. Activists have gathered daily to express their opposition to a rushed selection and confirmation process. My name is Barbara Moreland. I live in Arlington, Virginia. I have been a resident of this area since 1983. And We seem to always have something that we need to work on. And the whole human rights, criminal justice uh, 
issues are at the forefront uh, for me right now. And the Affordable Care Act, uh, the access that all people should have uh, to good health care coverage and to be able to make decisions about their health needs is vital. And this current Supreme Court nominee uh, is not supportive of these rights and therefore we're out to say uh, this is not a confirmation that should take place and indeed I'm wearing a shirt that displays the numbers of people who have died of COVID in this country and, over and the Senate could be in session right now supporting a bill that would provide financial support for those people who have suffered either directly by the illness or directly through the impact on their businesses or other issues with which they're dealing. But no, they're shutting all of that down so that they can have days of listening to Amy Coney Barrett. I'm 77 and so this is a continuation of what I've been doing for about the last 50 years which is con continuing to say there is still no justice for most people in this country and it just continues on until we get some change. Thank you. Uh -huh. Ms. Martha Dickey. Yes. Barrett dodged questions on how she might rule on a challenge to the Affordable Care Act, whether she would recuse herself on any lawsuit about the presidential election, and whether she would vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. This is Lydia Curtis for On the Ground. There was also testimony in D.C. this week before the D.C. Council on whether to make permanent the emergency police reform legislation passed in June after the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police and after demonstrations and a mass movement against racism erupted across the country in towns and cities, including here in D.C., Chantel James has more. Thursday, Councilmember Charles Allen, chairperson of the Committee on the Judiciary and Public Safety, convened a nine-hour hearing for the public to address three upcoming bills, the Rioting Modernization Amendment Act of 2020, the Internationally Banned Chemical Weapon Prohibition Amendment Act of 2020, and the Comprehensive Policing and Justice Reform Amendment Act of 2020. It was a chance for people from all eight wards, many driven by the nationwide movement to defund police, to directly urge the council to divest from militarized police solutions to the city's problems. Members of grassroots organizations and the unaffiliated alike shared first-person experiences with policing in schools, in their neighborhoods, and at recent sites of protests. Beverly Smith's son, Alonzo Smith, was slain by D.C. police in 2015, and she addressed the council to urge them to push farther than lukewarm reforms. I am glad to see that other kinds of unjust killings beside police shootings are being considered in the Comprehensive Policing and Justice Reform Act of 2020, such as chokehold restraints. However, it isn't comprehensive enough. The current legislation does not address the knee in the back. My 27-year-old son, Alonzo Smith, who was unarmed and did not commit a crime, 
died in the custody of two special police officers at the Marlboro Plaza apartment complex in the District of Columbia on November the 1st, 2015. His death was ruled a homicide, compression of the torso, which is knee in the back, no indictment for his murder. I have been fighting hard for change over the past five years for police and special police reform. There have been several proposed legislations for SPOs in DC after my son's death by Mayor Bowser and Council Member McDuffie. But like a lot of other proposals, there were no final action and no meaningful change. There are roughly 7,700 special police officers in DC and about 4,500 are armed. They are regulated and licensed by the Metropolitan Police Department with little to no oversight. Some are licensed to carry a firearm with only 40 hours of inadequate training in contrast to MPD who are required to have at least 28 weeks of training before being licensed to carry a firearm. Additionally, DC residents do not have any online mechanism to file a complaint against the SPO for excessive use of force or other complaints. Myself, along with Virginia Spass, has created a database for DC residents to report complaints against SPOs at spodatadc.org. I currently have a petition to disarm and reform SPOs in DC at dcjusticelab.org with the following four demands. One, disarming special police officers. Two, increasing the quantity and quality of training required. Three, passing the Special Police Officer Admitment Act. And four, prohibiting pursuit beyond property boundaries. I demand that my legislation disarm and reform SPOs in DC be introduced without waiting for a consensus on every part of the bill. Next, before closing, I would like to share a portrait of my son, Alonzo. Alonzo was a father of three kids. He was a substitute teacher. He was educated at Morgan State University. At the time he was murdered, he was planning on returning back to college for his social degree, social work degree, his bachelor's in social work degree. Thank you for this opportunity. Organizer April Goggins of Black Lives Matter DMV also gave impassioned testimony, drawing from her own life and directly calling out the council for failing to hold police accountable. Written testimony will still be accepted by the council at judiciary at dccouncil.us until Friday, October 23rd. To follow up, the council will hold a roundtable in December on alternatives to policing. For On the Ground... This is Chantal James. And we will continue to follow the final vote on that legislation on policing in D.C. In international news, our friends at the Gray Zone, Ben Norton, Max Blumenthal, and Anya Parampil, are on the ground in Bolivia as journalists and as election monitors. And they are facing threats in an extreme disinformation campaign from the fascist coup government there in advance of presidential elections scheduled for Sunday, October 18th. While the government harasses and threatens these journalists, it is allowing in as election observers the Organization of American States, despite the fact that the OAS produced that false report on last year's election that led to the military overthrow of the elected President Evo Morales, the first president elected from the indigenous population, which is the majority population in the country. 
In this report posted by the Gray Zone, Blumenthal reported from the right-wing stronghold of Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Santa Cruz is the eastern power base, not only of Luis Fernando Camacho, but also the other figurehead of the far right in Bolivia, Marco Pumari. And they gathered together here to end an explicitly religious, separatist, and sectarian campaign under the slogan, Creemos, we believe, we are the Christian believers, and the indigenous majority, they, they don't believe. They are basically Satanists. We remember Camacho storming into the presidential palace on the night of the coup that he and his band of right-wingers led, and declaring with a Bible in his hand that they had burned out the evil spirit of Morales. They are seeking to finalize that project, but despite having this uh, massive caravan rally here, they've had the effect of dividing the right, pulling support away from the consensus opposition candidate, Mesa, and possibly paving a path to victory for the MAS party, which represents the indigenous majority. And finally, there are several social justice actions in the nation's capital this weekend. The Women's March Fall 2020 edition kicks off at Freedom Plaza Saturday, October 17th, gathering at 11 a.m., rallying at noon, and marching at 1 p.m. More information is at act.womensmarch.com. That's act.womensmarch.com. And parents, students, teachers, administrators will be rallying also on October 17th, starting at noon at the School Without Walls High School in Northwest D.C. to support the Washington Teachers Union in their fight against premature reopening of D.C. public school buildings. The principal at School Without Walls was recently fired as he raised concern that the building was not yet COVID compliant to accept students, faculty, and staff. Washington Teachers Union President Elizabeth Davis said in a statement Thursday, that there is still no final signed agreement between her union and the D.C. public school system over how to safely reopen public schools here in the district. She wants an October 23rd D.C. Council hearing on the matter to be open to the public for comment. And in This Week in History, on October 15, 1966, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale founded the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Oakland, California, initially with a mission to protect the black community from police brutality. Inspired by Robert Williams' experiences fighting the Ku Klux Klan and his subsequent book, Negroes with Guns, Newton studied California gun laws and later began to implement armed self-protection patrols to confront racist police violence. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. From those who dare to interrupt the violence To those who expose the truth and break the silence Warriors who work to open up the prison bars Valiant souls who stand up against the unjust wars Multitudes who defy walls along the border Masses who unify to protect our water Rebel minds who unionize for workers' rights Fearless hearts who fight to defend trans lives Those who take back their land and their health Those who seek to redistribute the wealth Youth who demand a right to education Those who reclaim political power in their nation
nation and gentrification, imprisonment, migration, and militarization. Homophobia and transphobic aggression, violence by police, reproductive oppression. But from the pain, we will open eyes, awaken hearts and awaken minds. And that demands we intensify. Strategically, we are organized. Together, we can raise the vibration through our action and imagination. Respect, trust, and communication, and love for our future generations. Intersectional, inclusive, we come. Collective power is how this is won. So what we're going to do is a speak out. I know there's people who came to put on the handmaid's costume who want to talk about why. But let me just say, I said this to the media a moment ago, but I want to speak a little bit more frankly to you all who came out here. For myself personally, as I was proceeding with you across towards the Supreme Court with my head bowed, wearing this outfit, I felt the weight of thousands of years of traditions chains. I felt the weight of women who have been forced into the back alleys, who have been shamed for seeking to terminate a pregnancy they did not want to bring into this world. It's very heavy and very visceral what we are doing because what is happening right now in this country is very heavy and very visceral for the lives of millions and millions. The Trump-Pence regime is a regime that is threatening the lives and the future of global humanity, if you want to know the truth. For four years, we have seen them tear children from their parents' arms at the border and build concentration camps. We have seen them ban Muslims. We have seen them pack the courts with theocratic fascists. Over 200 nominees confirmed federal judges. We have seen them do what was unthinkable the day before becomes normal the next day, over and over again. So we have white supremacist vigilantes murdering protesters and being cheered for by the commander-in-chief of the White House. So we are here... Not just to express our moral opposition, although we should. We are here because RefuseFascism.org has a plan. That we are recruiting everybody to join and be part of making real. To drive this fascist regime from power. Voting is very important, but voting will not be enough to stop this fascist regime. They are openly saying that they intend to stay in power no matter how the votes turn out. So after we vote and before we vote, we need to be in the streets in mass nonviolent protests, demanding Trump pence out now and organizing people to join us and flood the streets until they're driven from power. This past summer, we saw the power of the people in the streets. We saw Donald Trump in this city driven into a bunker. That bloated bag of fascist feces driven into a bunker in fear. Because of the beautiful outpourings and protests. We have power when we are in the streets and we need to do all that and more now. Because all that and more is at stake in this election, but more than that, this fascist coup. We need to be in the streets for black lives, for the lives of women, for the lives of immigrants for the people of the world and the planet itself. So I want to ask everybody here to join us. Also this Saturday, we're going to be a contingent at the Women's March. There's going to be people coming in from all over the country, marching, outraged by this regime, by this confirmation, 
by the prospect of female enslavement through the courts, which is becoming more and more real every day. All these people need to get put on a mission together with us, going back to where they came from and here in D.C. to not let this be a one day affair. Not let this be just one moment we let the world know how we feel, but the beginning of galvanizing the millions in this country who are sick at heart to come back into the streets and drive this regime out. You have been listening to Sansara Taylor of Refuse Fascism leading a rally about women's reproductive rights while trying to actually overtalk a heckling man on Thursday, October 15th in front of the Supreme Court here in Washington, D.C. Uh, she was among the women dressed in the red costume of the handmaids from Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel about sex and procreation slaves. Atwood based the novel on a far-right Catholic sect similar to one that Judge Amy Coney Barrett is a member. The rally was to protest the nomination of Barrett to the Supreme Court. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa en su mente para revolución I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa en su mente para liberación Ayo, ayo My heroes are young lords adored And ready to go to war In a society with racial anxiety Singing the blues of various hues and colors On the streets People were killing each other so they on the coalition of brothers and sisters on a revolutionary mission. Now listen, they were open with no crooked ass politicians. They made their own decisions based solely on their proposition. They had a 13 point program and platform. They knew that organizing was an art form that they could transform from college students and dorms into a militant organization with uniforms. The newspapers read Liberación a Muerte, Liberty of Death to their last breath, fighting for those that have less. So though we man stress, we still blessed. We'll stay blessed. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa en su mente para revolución I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa en su mente para liberación Ayo, ayo Estaba en un lado con la luz apagado Desde el hermano así sus palabras están enterrados Ves que la sangre de los incas, aztecas y mayas Lo llevan much higher Como Malcolm y Che Guevara We're categorized together equals liberty over the weather before it started forever. Somos soldados, lo llaman no malo, pero solo queremos que los niños crezcan y entiendan su lesson o sea que guess This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C., Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, before Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett stunned us during her confirmation hearings this week with her inability to say that voter intimidation is wrong or illegal or that the president should commit to a peaceful transition of power, my guest for this month's episode of The F Word wrote in a widely distributed article that her nomination is another step toward Christian fascism. Journalist Chris Hedges is the host of the Emmy-nominated TV show On Contact. He spent 15 years as a New York Times foreign correspondent in the Middle East and in the Balkans. He is author of more than a dozen books, including most recently America, The Farewell Tour. And in reference to our discussion today, he wrote in 2008 the book American Fascists, The Christian Right and the War on America. Welcome to On the Ground, Chris. Thanks, Esther. Well, let's start with what is most obvious for our audience, which includes many people of faith who may bristle at the term Christian fascist and who may even accept that people can speak in tongues. So what is Christian fascism and what kind of role is it playing in Barrett's nomination? So first of all, let me say that I grew up in the church. My father was a Presbyterian minister. My mother was a seminary graduate, although she went on to become a professor, and I graduated from Harvard Divinity School. So I come out of a faith background. And I think the greatest failing of the church, of the mainstream liberal church, even the evangelical church, is its refusal to denounce this particular movement, which Barrett is emblematic of, as Christian heretics. The whole idea that Jesus came to make us rich or powerful, the whole idea that Jesus somehow blessed the white race, and in particular the American white race, to build a Christian nation. The idea that the gospel is not primarily focused on the plight of the poor and the oppressed, these are heretical beliefs. The prosperity gospel is uh, an anathema to the core message of the gospel, and I fault the church for not calling these people out for who they are, uh, which Mm. are Christian heretics. Mm. So this isn't an issue about speaking in tongues. Tongues, It's not really even an issue about abortion. I was very close to the radical priest, Daniel Berrigan, who uh, vehemently opposed abortion. This is about the perversion of the gospel to build a power, a movement that aimed to take power. How did that happen? Well, it happened with a shift within the evangelical movement in the 1970s. But what it comes down to is this idea that self-identified Christians can build the Christian society, and this will then uh, create the conditions for the second coming, for the return of Christ. Now, traditional fundamentalists or evangelicals always called on believers to remove themselves from the contaminants of secular society, including politics. Mm -hmm. And we saw a seizure of power in 1980, for instance, Baptist Seminary, which was one of the great seminaries in the United States, was essentially taken over by this new, it's probably better to call them dominionism, this new movement, uh, although they use the name evangelical. This movement has been heavily funded by the most retrograde forces in capitalism, including, of course, millions of dollars that have come from the Koch brothers and others to support the Barrett nomination. Why? Well, because if 
Jesus blesses those who are righteous with power and wealth than those who are poor uh, and struggle and marginalized deserve what they get because they're not right with Jesus. And so the capitalists or the corporations have found Tyson Foods, for instance, which puts these chaplains in their plants. It's, it's, it, it's, it's a marriage between hmm. corporate capitalism, neoliberalism, covered over with the veneer of the Christian faith. And that's precisely who she represents. I try to remember to tell all guests for the F word, our monthly segment on fascism, that our touchstone for the series are the words from 1960s revolutionary George Jackson, who defined fascism as the complete control of the state by monopoly capital when the relationship between the state and the corporation becomes indiscernible. And I thought about our touchstone because like the first sentence you wrote in your recent article is this, the Christian right is content to have the focus on Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett revolve around her opposition to abortion and membership in People of Praise, a far-right Catholic cult that practices speaking in tongues. What it does not want examined is her abject subservience to corporate power, her hostility to workers, civil liberties, unions, and environmental regulations. So tell us more about this kind of subservience to corporate power and how that connects to the theology uh, the dominionism that you were talking about of these like far right religious people. Well, I hate to criticize George Jackson, who I admire, but fascism always has an uneasy relationship with capital. And a perfect example would be the relationship between the German industrialists and the Nazi Party. The industrialists look at the Nazis the way we look at many in the Christian right as buffoons. But with the breakdown of capitalism in late Weimar Germany, the rise of a powerful communist party, they realized that the Nazi party would protect their interests. And that's precisely what's happening in the United States. These corporations don't care about abortion or same-sex marriage or gun rights what they do care about is the further consolidation of their power and their wealth. And they know that the Christian right will give it to them. So that's what we've seen is a convergence of this homegrown fascist movement. I mean, remember Paxton, when he wrote his book, Anatomy of Fascism, called the Ku Klux Klan America's most authentic fascist movement. And the Christian right is really the logical conclusion of the Klan itself. I mean, the whole birth of this movement came in the 1960s, especially in the South, where Jerry Falwell and others set up, quote-unquote, Christian schools for white children because they did not want their children to be educated with black children. And so this is what's happened. And it is given cover by this ideology of dominionism, which was articulated by Roussas Rushduni in this very turgid book that I've read. And this guy was an unrepentant uh, racist. If you look closely, people like, for instance, Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court will cite Rushduni. So they've cleaned up Rushduni. I mean, Rushduni said, we don't need prisons because 
people with felony convictions under biblical law will be executed. I mean, they're huge proponents of the death penalty for all sorts of issues, including like blasphemy and sodomy. Um, But that's where we're headed. That's where Pence comes out of. That's where Betsy DeVos comes out of. William Barr, Mike Pompeo, Ben Carson. These people have managed to seize senior positions of power and huge segments of the U.S. Congress uh, are utterly beholden to the ideology of the Christian right. They're raided by all sorts of groups. And, and I, you're talking 250-plus Congress members are getting 100% approval ratings. They, they have created parallel institutions like Liberty University and Patrick Henry Law School. They have created their own media platforms that have hermetically sealed tens of millions of Americans inside this very perverted worldview. You see this QAnon conspiracy theory about the deep state and Hollywood running huge uh, child sex trafficking rings merging with the Christian right. Many of these Christian, uh, quote-unquote Christian pastors are peddling uh, this theory. You see close ties to these militias, especially in Michigan. How were these militias, these white supremacist armed groups, empowered? Well, they were empowered to oppose ostensibly the lockdown, but they were often uh, funded and supported by foundations, including foundations in Michigan that have close ties to Betsy DeVos. Eric Prince, Betsy DeVos's brother, founded Blackwater, uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, private contracting firms uh, in the world. Uh, and uh, this has given to the, these Christian fascists an armed component, uh, which is always a crucial element to any fascist movement. And they will stop at nothing to, if Donald Trump, as expected, loses this election, there, there will be uh, nothing they won't do to try and keep him in power. I take all of these concerns very, very seriously. Um, So in that sense, I really look at this as, uh, number one, a political movement rather than a religious movement. And I think that it is a fascist movement. I did not use the term fascist lightly in my book, American Fascist, The Christian Right and the War in America. In fact, I sat down with Paxton. I sat down with a great scholar of fascism, Fritz Stern, to tick off all of the attributes of this movement to see if it actually fit into the definition of fascism, and I believe it does. So when I was looking at the article and the book, I I made note of how you talk about how the law is used as a veneer for injustice. Most commonly, people think of the the obvious hypocrisy of talking about being pro-life, right? People say the religious right only cares about the right to life of the unborn. Um, but not the right to life once you get here. And so they don't oppose the military or the U.S. killing machine, you know, or they don't think that once you get here, you have a right to, uh, you know, health care, all these other things, right? And I thought about the police killings, for example. So maybe you could just talk a little bit more about how they're used to prop up not only uh, corporate power, but of military and, like, police power? Well, because they are huge proponents of not only the death penalty, but also the use of force as a cleansing agent 
not only on the streets of American cities against people they condemn as anarchists and socialists, which is just dog whistle words for the racism that is at the core of this movement, but never forget that they're cheerleaders for the wars in the Middle East against the slaughter and displacement of millions of Muslims who they condemn as satanic. So, as Barney Frank said, their concern with life begins at conception and ends at birth. And again, the pro-life movement, I think, gives them a kind of shield as if they care about the vulnerable and care about children. The QAnon theory resonates within the Christian right because it's supposedly about the exploitation of children, while at the same time, they are cheerleaders for these murderous policies, both domestically and internationally. Yeah. And then there were two things that are kind of closely related, you know, how fascists co-op words and language and how they bring words and language into their fold to transform it into what they want it to be and how they alone define patriotism and belonging, which is like so important in a fascist state, you know, like being part of the the group and opposing some enemy out there somewhere. And it, it made me think of the way that taking a knee by Colin Kaepernick was used by Trump to twist a protest about racial violence and murder, police murder. He used it to basically stoke anti-black racism and turned it into this test of patriotism. So even though Kaepernick was given that idea to take a knee by uh, someone in the military. Trump was able to turn it into not only this thing about patriotism and the flag, but somehow it was against the military. And because this was repeated over and over in hate radio and in the um, this proliferation of like right wing news outlets that, you know, have all this financial backing, people bought this. And, you know, you have veterans who had to be re-educated about what it was really all about, those who bothered to be re-educated. Anyway, just talk about the way that this fascist movement is used to prop up the ideas around how language is used and what is patriotism. But before you answer that, I just realized we need to take a brief break. We'll be right back. This is On the Ground, ground org. 
Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm in conversation with journalist Chris Hedges about his article and book, American Fascists, The Christian Right and the War on America. And before the break, Chris, I ask you to talk about how fascists co-op language and also co-op the ideas about what is patriotism. Right. I mean, remember Kaepernick and the people who took a knee were often booed by fans in the stands because it has a very large white working class base. So again, he's playing to that kind of racism. And you're right that the movement takes words uh, and then gives them new definitions. What does it mean to be a patriot? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does liberty mean? And this is what all totalitarian movements do. So, for instance, the whole, they call it originalism, this whole originalist theory, legal theory that supposedly Barrett embraces, uh, and comes Anton Scalia, who was her great mentor, is a great proponent of this. And as an aside, let us never forget that one of the biggest cheerleaders for Scalia and Clarence Thomas, two of the worst Supreme Court justices in modern history, was Joe Biden. But it's, again, like the doctrine of the Christian rights, it's, it's selective. So the Christian right, they're not literalists, they're selective literalists. They pick out those passages of the Bible that buttress their ideology and ignore the rest, like most of the Christian Gospels. It's why they focus so much on Paul. And when I did the book, which took me two years to do, and I was in the mega churches and at pro-life weekends and took evangelism explosion seminar and with D. James Kennedy in Florida, I mean, I was embedded in the movement. I was completely upfront about who I was and my own religious background. And because I came out of a tradition, a religious tradition, and knew the Bible, what was fascinating is that they never wanted to argue about the Bible with me, ever, because they don't really know it. They know those passages or sections of the Bible that are fed to them to feed this ideology and are vastly ignorant about the rest of it. And the same is true with this legal theory. So supposedly it's interpretation or make the law living to the, a current changing society is out uh, and the, the Constitution becomes the holy grail. And yet these people do not defend the right to privacy. We know because of the courage of Edward Snowden that we're the most watched, monitored, photographed, uh, eavesdropped uh, population in human history, and, but that they ignore. So again, it's a selective legalism, which Barrett embodies. And so you're exactly right that they use all of those comforting words that are propagated by the capitalist democracy, but they mean something else. And they're really a cover for a very frightening kind of totalitarianism. And that's why, of course, they use the symbols of the Christian faith and fuse the, the iconography and language of Christianity with the symbols of the state to sacralize it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's exactly what happened, by the way, in the 1930s in Nazi Germany with a so-called German Christian church, which was mm -hmm. pro-Nazi, which was outlawed as soon as the war was over. And my great mentor at Harvard Divinity School, James Luther Adams, was at the University of Heidelberg in 1935 and 1936. He was in the lecture hall watching Heidegger begin his lectures with the Nazi salute. He actually dropped out and joined the underground opposition a church led by Bonhoeffer, the confessing church. And uh, he was 80 when I had him. 
And he used to tell us when we were students, when you're my age, you'll all be fighting the Christian fascists because he understood, because he lived through it, exactly what the Christian right was doing and how it preyed upon the dislocation of, of a white working class, that the economic element is absolutely fundamental to all totalitarian movements. And because of our inability to deal with a pandemic, that are projecting 40 million people being evicted from their homes, a collapse of the healthcare system, uh, there's no ICU beds in Mississippi now, and other states, thousands of people at food banks, the drying up of government help in terms of unemployment benefits and stimulus checks, all of this will exacerbate the social crisis, which was already severe before the pandemic for the working poor and the working class. But that is something that these movements know how to exploit very, very well. The core is really exploiting despair. It's why Fritz Stern on his book on fascism is called The Politics of the Culture of Despair. Hannah Arendt writes the same thing, that it's this despair that sees people turn to these fanatic, racist movements that believe in magical thinking. All totalitarian movements are about magical thinking, and that, of course, is at the core of the Christian right. It's why you can't argue with them rationally about you know, whether dinosaurs were created at the same time as people, because that real world, that secular world, that world of fact, and uh, that almost destroyed them. Uh, and when I did the book, the stories of uh, struggles with evictions and bankruptcies and sexual and domestic abuse and alcoholism and all of that, uh, it was fascinating, the high percent, especially of women, by the way, of sexual abuse. Uh, I didn't put it in the book because it wasn't a poll, but I think every single woman that I interviewed, and I interviewed dozens uh, who were fervent members of the Christian right have been sexually abused or, or victims of domestic violence. Well, actually, maybe not as a part of this discussion, but we've been talking on the show about history, actually. And um, I think you recently interviewed Gerald Horn and just even talking about um, what really is the real history of the the founding of the United States and it's it's so interesting because what happened at Mount Rushmore is that, you know, Trump took direct aim at people who are writing real history, people like Howard Zinn, people like Gerald Horn, who he says, you know, people are lying about our history. So it reminds me of this whole issue of uh, people not believing the facts, but having their own version of history that they're holding very close to. And that has a lot to do with people at this moment not really being able to confront racism and to confront what is white supremacy. And even in terms of China, he's going out for his campaign rallies, calling it, you know, blaming China, saying that China spread the flu intentionally, which is really dangerous. You have a lot of people here, you know, it's still attacking uh, Chinese or Asian people because they believe China did this to us. I mean, somebody said that to a friend of mine recently. Well, China really did it to us this time, didn't they? <laughs> so- <laughs> well, that, that is, I mean, these fascist systems are built on racism. The Christian right is built on racism. And the thing about fascist movements is that they always need conflict to kind of lurch from one crisis, existential crisis to the next. 
And when they finish with one victim, they'll find another. So the deeply embedded racism towards black Americans does not in any way preclude the racism towards Asian Americans or Latinos or and then, of course, they've got a long list after that, uh, uh, homosexuals, gay people, GBLTQ, uh, feminists, intellectuals, artists, you know, there's kind of a never-ending list. So the last thing I want to ask you, I want to kind of go back to the ideology of the Christian fascists and also the pandemic. So I think this may be from the article. You wrote, if you are poor, if you lack medical, proper medical care, if you are paid substandard wages, if you are trapped in the lower class, if you are a victim of police violence, this is because, according to this ideology, you are not a good Christian and not blessed by God. In this belief system, you deserve what you get. There is nothing wrong these homegrown fascists preach with the structures or systems of power. It is the mantra of self-help that made gurus like Oprah and Tony Robbins rich dressed up as the voice of God. And so I was thinking in terms of the pandemic, how much does this particular ideology permeate areas outside the law? So I'm thinking of how people in the U.S. are not being served and are literally being killed right now by government inaction during the pandemic. And I know you know Richard Wolf, and he says that it's a sign of how weak the working class and the labor movement here is in the U.S. But I'm thinking that it's also a sign of how this ideology of the Christian right so permeates the thinking here. So in this country, not only do you have the racism of not wanting everyone to get health care and aid, but it seems like Americans have been like hypnotized to believe that we're undeserving, that we have not earned it that healthcare, housing, and human needs are not human rights. Yeah, that's exactly right. And those forces of indoctrination have been quite strong. So the whole idea of the capitalist mantra, and this is fed to you by Hollywood and television, which in itself is a form of violence, watching these TV shows where people live these lives that at once you're told that you can get if you're exceptional and work hard, but of course are totally beyond your reach, you kind of blame yourself for your own social and economic misery. And that's how the system is designed. So on the one hand, you've broken the organizations and institutions, including labor unions, that were the only effective mechanism that gave people power. Corporations have seized total control of the press so that the voices and experiences and suffering of now, at this point, the vast majority of Americans are unheard and unseen. They're invisible. The only time you ever see places like Ferguson is when they erupt, and then you're given no context to that eruption. Uh, So it's kind of certified by the corporate media as incomprehensible, which means those people are incomprehensible. Yeah, you're very right that and this is Antonio Gramsci, that the culture is an effective tool for social control. And I think they have done a very fine job of getting people in the underclass to blame themselves for their own suffering and their own misery. Uh, For me, I teach in a prison, so I see it, you know, with my students. And and, and that, uh, you know, that's why so much of effective resistance is about education, as the old socialists and anarchists and communists knew. Right. Well, I want to 
I was just thinking I was leaving it there, but I, I guess I want to try to leave it on a, on a slightly, I know you don't believe in hope, <laughs> but I want to leave it on a better note in terms of resistance, at least. What are some of the strong points of resistance that you see in society? Well, all of these street demonstrations, I think, are unique in contemporary society for a couple reasons. One, they have not fallen for the gaslighting of the Democratic Party, including the mayor of Washington, who paints 35-foot tall leather on the street, saying Black Lives Matter, and then calls for, I think, a $50 million increase in the police budget and the building of a $500 million jail. They're not falling for Nancy Pelosi's kente scarf. They're not falling for the usual rhetoric about police reform, which uh, Biden is still spouting, along with the Democratic Party elites. They know that all of these measures to quote-unquote professionalize the police and give them even more money, which again is part of the Biden agenda, has only consolidated the power of the police and allowed them to be held less accountable uh, for the crimes that they commit. They get the fact that it's about abolition Uh, It's not about reform. They get the fact that these are structural issues, which must be addressed if we're going to wrest back control of our society and have any sense of, uh, you know, equality or justice or fairness. I'm not in the demonstrations, but from a distance, I think they're, I mean, first of all, these people are so heroic and they have my deep, deep, deep admiration. But I also get a sense that they're not falling for the usual tropes that in the past have been able to buy off uh, other protests. Okay. Well, I will have to leave it there. Uh, I've been speaking to journalist Chris Hedges. Thank you for joining me today, Chris. Thanks, Esther. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Thank you to Chantel James and Lydia Curtis and Thomas O'Rourke. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us, write us, support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, and on Patreon.com at On the Ground Show. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam, is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. And if you check out the podcast, please remember to give us a nice rating. The music we played this hour included Taina Asili, We Are Rising, which you performed for a Facebook Live event as warm-up for the Women's March. Conrado Maluk Inspiracion. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Mr. Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Sweet time. I'll give it right back to you. Oh, what is this? Doing?